Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings, as we continue in our series, God's Power on Display in Man. And this morning's title, From Death to Life. From Death to Life. Talk about a miracle. There's no greater miracle I can think of than to see God bring someone from death to life. Amen? And that'd be pretty awesome talking about a funeral being over. I mean, it's, it's done. It's over. Everybody go home. It's, everything's changed, you know. Uh, but 2 Kings chapter 13, and uh, you're going to see when Elisha dies, something really unique and interesting happens in this passage. So I want to read in 2 Kings chapter 13, and beginning with verse 14 down through verse 21. <clears throat> when Elisha became sick with the illness from which he died... King Jehoash of Israel went down and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha responded, Get a bow and arrows. So he got a bow and arrows. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, Grasp the bow. So the king grasped it, and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Elisha said, Open the east window. So he opened it. Elisha said, Shoot. So he shot. Then Elisha said, The Lord's arrow of victory. Yes, the arrow of victory over Aram. You are to strike down the Arameans in Aphek until you have put an end to them. Then Elisha said, Take the arrows. So he took them. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. So he struck the ground three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck down the Aram until you had put an end to them. But now you will strike down Aram only three times. Then Elisha died and was buried. Now stop right there just for a moment. So here's the end chapter of Elisha's life. He is there, and uh, he's, he's kind of leading in, in the charge to destroy the Arameans right up to the point of death. And we find that he's upset when he dies. He said, you could have had the Arameans, but you didn't follow directions. You didn't do it exactly as you should have. So they're not completely wiped out, but nonetheless, Elisha then dies. So, well, just the story, the end of the story of his life, the end chapter. But even in Elisha's death, God does something miraculous with his life once he has passed. So in the end, the middle of verse 20, it says, Now Moabite raiders used to come into the land in the spring of the year, and once as the Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a raiding party, so they threw the man into Elisha's tomb. Stop right there again. Don't read on. So, I mean, you kind of get a picture here in your mind's eye just for a moment. Elisha's died, and as it were, in many customs, they went out there and they dug a pit. And they're going to, I don't know, God's word doesn't tell us whether they're going to mark it, whether they were or weren't, whatever. It just says that they built the pit, and obviously they had some time where they had placed Elisha down into the pit. And as they are whatever it is the circumstances are that are taking place, here's another man who has just died. And in the process of him dying, they look up and they see this band of raiders who are coming right at him. So what do they do? They freak as any one of us would. Here's a bunch of people coming after us. We don't know what they're going to do. They're going to raid us. So they grab this body, this man who just died, and they throw him down in the pit with Elisha. Sounds fair enough, right? I mean, why? we ain't got time to dig too graves. I mean, let's throw them down there with Elisha. End of story, let's run for our lives, right? Not exactly. So look at verse 21 then. 
So once, as the Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a raiding party, so they threw the man into Elisha's tomb, and when he touched Elisha's bones, the man revived and stood up. Now, just think about that for a moment. Talk about someone who's dead. I mean, he says it bones. That means if there's bones, kind of use your mind's imagination just for a moment. If there are bones, that means he's been what in that grave for a while? He'd been laying there a while, right? I mean, because bones are exposed for whatever reason. We don't know all the details. But all of a sudden, as they throw him into this pit, his body, I don't know, you can kind of, in your mind's eye, he kind of rolls over, hits his bones, and all of a sudden, boom! Now imagine you're that guy for a minute. You're the guy who's died and been thrown in there. What am I doing here? I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? So, I mean, it's exciting what God is going to do. So Elisha's already dead and done with. He's in the grave. His bones are exposed. Another man who's died thrown on top of him, and he comes to life all of a sudden. End of story. Go home. Not yet, though. So you get this idea here as he's going on. I mean, this story is so short, simple, and to the point, right? Elisha dies. They throw him in a pit. Another man dies. They throw him in the pit with him. His body touches his bones. Boom, back to life. Over. But you know, I'd love to know what happened after this. I'm reading on in chapter 14, and at the end of chapter 22, and the 14, I'm like, this guy's not mentioned again. What happened? Does anyone else want to know what happened after that? I mean, you're this guy, and you're down there, and all of a sudden you come to life, and you're like, what am I doing here? This is not normal. I want to know what happened. But God's Word doesn't tell us. And I thought, well, why in the world would I preach a message on one verse? Well, good question. I'm not going to. I just want to kind of lead that into as an introduction to what else can happen through the death of one man's life. When we think about that, it's amazing that God, for some reason, chose to take this little snippet of a man's life and story and write about it. Say, well, it's not a very big story. No, it's really short, in fact. It's really kind of simple and to the point. But what we find is that this man dies, named Elisha, and even in his death, God is still using him to bring life to another person. I don't know why. I don't know if God had a plan for the second man who died and touched him and came to life again. God doesn't tell us. I'd love to know. But I didn't find the answer to that. But I know that God still works beyond the grave. So there's another story of one man's death bringing life to another. And it truly is the greatest miracle ever recorded in the Word of God. In my prayer, I ask God this. If there be one here today that does not know He as their Savior... Maybe today would be their day of salvation. Maybe today would be your day of salvation. So I want to talk about that a little bit. So there's another story that's even greater of its significance in the Word of God, and that's the story of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, you know that he went to the cross and he died. And in his death, many others were brought to life. Isn't that awesome? And not just one man, but... Thousands and millions of men after his death. God is still using him. So what is this miracle? Well, I'm glad you asked this morning. So we're going to be jumping around just a little bit. I'm sure Matt will have them up on the screen as, as he's able. But John chapter 3, verse 16, probably one of the most familiar verses you've ever read in God's Word, says, For God so loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, 
so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God proved his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? That God God loved us so much that He would send His one and only Son down to this earth to leave the splendor of heaven to be a man just like you and I so that He could do one thing. Die on a cross and produce life for those who place their faith and trust in Him. That's a miracle. That's an incredible miracle. And He did it while we were still sinners. He said, listen, you don't have to get everything right in your life. You don't have to do everything perfect. And then I'll save you. He says, if you'll just trust me. Put your faith and trust in me. And I'll give you eternal life. So what is the significance of Jesus Christ's death on the cross? In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all have sinned. And in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, it says, for all have sinned and what? falls short of the glory of God. In those two verses, we have come to the realization that every one of us are born sinners. And because we are born sinners, we are born separated from God in heaven above. And the bottom line is there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. That's what makes His miracle, the miracle of the cross, so significant in our lives. Because He did for us what we could not do for ourselves, right? Isn't that amazing? So, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The word wages, we understand what that means. If you work towards something, the wages that you receive is because of what you have earned. Because we were born sinners, we have earned the, the, the inheritance of a life separated from God in the lake of fire for all eternity. It says that's what we deserve. None of us is good enough to deserve anything but that. But he says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, I'm giving you the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. It's the gift of eternal life through salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So the significance. Jesus replied in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Because of the state that we're born into and sinners separated from God, apart from Jesus Christ, we couldn't even see heaven. We couldn't even spend eternity with God the Father. We couldn't go there apart from our faith and trust in Him. Because we were born in sin, we cannot save ourselves. Talk about a miracle that means means something of far great value. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, is one of my favorite verses in all the Scripture. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Remember the whole whole purpose of this series that we've been in is God's power on display in man. Talk about the power of the gospel changing a life. How can I receive this miracle? It's very clear in God's Word. There are a lot of people who are searching for peace, searching for joy, seeking for fulfillment in a lot of different ways. But the only way you can truly have peace is to know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. So how can I receive this miracle? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with a heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with a mouth resulting in salvation. 
God's Word makes it so clear. And I'm so thankful that he put verses like 1 John 5.13 in God's Word. These things have I written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't have to hope. I don't have to guess. I don't have to wish. I don't have to think I got it. I can know for certain that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And that's a great confidence that I have because of the miracle that Jesus Christ gave to us on the cross. And the reality of that is, he says very simply, if you will confess with your mouth, what does it mean to confess something? Be honest about it. To be truthful about it. But to say, I believe it. Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He did exactly what he said he did. And I believe it. And I'm willing to confess that before man. That's what he says in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of that. I confess boldly that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Right? He says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, you know, I believe. It's because the devils believe and tremble, God's word says. I believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth. He died on the cross. He gave his life, shed his blood, that I may have forgiveness of sins, by which Rome, or 11, or Hebrews 11 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness of sins. So he must have shed his blood for our forgiveness of sins. I believe he did that. And because of that, I can have eternal life in him. So who is able to receive this? It says, for everyone, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow. Through this miracle, I have witnessed people overcome and overcome and overcome. I've watched people who have partaken of this miracle and I've watched them overcome addictions. Isn't that amazing? People fight for years and go through programs after programs after programs and they never quite get it. And then all of a sudden, for some people, they put their faith and trust in Christ and all of a sudden, boom, God gives them that strength that they need to overcome. I've witnessed that. Maybe you have too. I've witnessed people overcome fears. They've tried it. Everything that they know to do to overcome the fears that they have. And then God gives them the strength. I've watched people overcome hatred and anger. That apart from God, they could not do it. But because of the miracle of the cross and their faith in Jesus Christ, they've been able to have victory. I've watched people overcome disappointments. Maybe you have. Because it's the greatest miracle that's ever been given. Does God do this every time? Wouldn't that be phenomenal if God did it every time? But He doesn't. I don't know why. But I know that He's there. I, I know that He says that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I know that He's there every time I need Him. But I wish I could say He does it every time. I think sometimes God keeps us dependent on Him so that we won't just say, well, I got that victory and just kind of go off and do our own thing. God keeps us in a place where we're dependent on Him. Are there many ways to get to heaven? Unfortunately, there's only one way. John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are a lot of people who try a lot of different ways. And I've heard people say, even from time to time around here, I say, I hear people say, well, you know, everyone's trying to get there. You know, everyone has, you know, they're going to do it this way, and this guy's going to do it that way. And 
Can I just say, honestly and humbly, there is only one way. One way and one way only. And it's for Jesus Christ. In fact, he said in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. There is no other way. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. We cannot do anything in, our, in and of ourselves to save ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I can do it apart from God, what do I need Him for? Do you understand that? It is only through Jesus Christ. And I think it's ironic Maybe it's not so ironic that when Jesus Christ talked about coming, being the only way, the truth, the, the life, and no one coming unto the Father but by Him, He pictured that by the example of a sheep fold and the shepherd who is the shepherd of that fold. It's amazing that there was no door in the fold of the, where the sheep were kept. There was a stone wall just so high that went all the way around the perimeter. But where the sheep go in and out, there was no door. Just a doorway. You know why that was? Because the shepherd slept in the doorway. And Jesus Christ says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I give my life for my sheep. There's only one way. And he says, other sheep have I that need to come into the fold. I don't know. Do you need to be in the fold? Is God calling you to enter the fold? You have to go through Jesus Christ. So it's only by what he has done not by what we could do ourselves. Well, how do I know if I've received this miracle? I think there are several characteristics. I think there are several things in, from Scripture, and this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but just several verses that God brought to my, to my mind as I was preparing the message. How do I know if I've received this miracle or not? Well, Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says in John chapter 13, 35, our, by, our, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by our what? Love for one another. So this idea of love being in the life of a believer, is there love in your life, for, first of all, for God? I say, well, I think there is. We're going to talk about that just a little bit further in a moment. But is there love? For God. And then secondly, is there love for those around you? Are you a person who loves those around you? And by this shall all men know that you're my disciples by our love for one another in the body of Christ too. Do you love one another? And then he goes on to say in John chapter 14 verse 15, If you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. So there's a life of obedience that is characterized by a person who truly loves God, who is one of his children. Say, well, can I be a child of God and know Jesus as my Savior and not love others? No, you can't. Because that's what God's Word gives as a definition, a characteristic. Can I be a child of God and be saved and, and, and not, not, not be obedient? No, not as a characteristic of a life, as a lifestyle uh, characteristic in your life. No. Your life is characterized by obedience if you're a child of God. Does it mean you're perfect? No, not going there. We're not perfect. But my desire is I want to walk in obedience. I'm going to flub once in a while. I'm going to mess up. But my life is characteristic of someone who's trying to be obedient to God. 
about Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1? It says, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Are you trying to imitate God or the things of this world, the people of this world, the things of this world has to offer? I think a child of God truly wants to imitate God. How about Romans chapter 12, verse 2? And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, the things of this world are not what grasp our attention. Don't get me wrong. Things are attractive, right? Are they not? I mean, who wouldn't want that cabin in the woods or in the mountains, right? Right by, in a, in a, in a trout-stocked stream right in front of it, right? Man. Yeah, there's things that are attractive in this world. But the world doesn't have us. How about Galatians chapter 3, verse 26? For through faith you are all the sons of Christ Jesus. Do you have faith? Are your, is your life one that is characteristic of having faith? Do you trust God? You see, life can be overwhelming, right? We know that. But a friend of mine put it this way a long time ago. Either we have big problems and a small God, or we have small problems and a big God. See, a problem can be turned into a project for which we can praise God for later. See the progression? Problem, project, praise. That's the way it works. And if I have a small God, then these things are overwhelming. But if I have a big God who's in control... He doesn't make any mistakes. And I know that he's going to do what's best for me, right? If he didn't want me to go through it, I wouldn't be going through it right now. So there's a love for God, a love for neighbor. There's a love for one another. There's a, um, a love that says, I want to be obedient to God and his word. There is a, a desire to imitate God and, and to be like him. There's, a, God, there's a, a desire to be obedient. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and punishes every son he receives. When we do wrong, do we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Do we feel as though there is chastening when we are living in sin? If not, it may be an indication that you're not one of God's children. I don't know about you, but that's what the conscience is for. That's why he convicts us when we're doing what's wrong. He wants us to know the truth so that we can walk in it. And there are times that God says, huh, don't go there. Ah, you just went there. i got to deal with that. i got to correct it. Just like we do with our children. He says, whom he loves, he chastens. And there's times that God has to correct us. How about Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives within me. Think about that. Am I crucified with Christ? In other words, I'm putting God's desires... His will in front of my own. A true child of God will want to do that. Let me just give you one more. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Think about this one. That in everything, living for the glory of God. Do we live for the glory of God? So whether you eat, drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is it that we do almost more than any other thing in our life? eat, drink, amongst everything that we do. I've said it before, but something so monotonous as eating and drinking, something so habitual as eating and drinking, something so constant that we do every day of our lives, eating and drinking, 
if something that common, that trivial, that constant, if he says to do that to the glory of God, what about the rest of our life? Do we really truly live for the glory of God? In fact, Colossians three goes on to say that in all things he might have the or one that in all things he might have the preeminence. Do we give God the preeminence with everything that we do? See, these are some things that we should ask ourselves from time to time because it really gives evidence to whether or not we're truly one of God's children or not. It brings me to the last question I wanted to address this morning. Do some people think they've received the miracle when in fact they haven't? Unfortunately, yes. I think there are a lot of people in this world who think that for whatever reason, for a host of reasons, that they're going to heaven. That the miracle was received. They've accepted what Jesus Christ did on the cross and they're on their way. Even though they have no fruit of that, they have no characteristics of that, but they might be morally good people. But do some people think they've received the miracle, but in fact have not? I believe they have that, that situation. Matthew chapter 7, verses 18 through 21. He said, A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. So he says there is a fruit that is available to be seen to those who are truly children of God. What is the fruit that we are producing as his children? You say, well, that's a you know, nitpicky, judgmental thing, isn't that? No, not necessarily. I'm not the judge. I'm not the fruit inspector. God's word just simply says that if you are a child of God, there will be a certain fruit that is produced. And then he goes on to say this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So he says there are going to be those who will think that they are in and that they're on their way, when in fact they are not. I wish I could wave the magic wand and say, boom, you're in. Boom, you're in. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, wouldn't that be really cool? Can't do it. Only you and God can work those circumstances out. Put your faith and trust in him. But if you truly know him, there will be things that will change your life for all eternity. And then here's what he says. I ask the question, do some people think they have received the miracle when in fact they, not, they have not? Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Wow. Isn't that going to be a startling day for some? To think that they're in and to find out that they're not so what in the world does this have to do with anything it has everything to do with everything this is the greatest miracle that god has ever given the greatest miracle that he's ever performed 
is the miracle of life because of the death of his son. You know, I was talking to someone the other day, and we were just talking about all the different denominations, religions that are out there, and there's a host of them, right? I mean, there's thousands, there's tens of thousands of registered religions right now with our government. Something like 44,000 registered religions. And you know what's amazing about all of them? They have a founder. So-and-so, on this day, founded this denomination. This religion. This whatever. All of them have a birth and a death. You know, we serve God's Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, was buried for three days, and then what? Rose again. And now he's in heaven preparing a home for those of us that know him as our Savior. And why did he do that? He said that where, where I am, there you may be also. I believe that God's desire is for us to know him. It's not going to be the case for everyone. But I believe it's his desire. In fact, he tells us in his word that hell was created for Satan and his angels. That wasn't his desire for us. His desire is that we know him. So the question I have to ask this morning as I read through these verses is this. Have you partaken of the greatest miracle that's ever been performed? The miracle of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, giving his life in exchange for ours. That's an incredible miracle. It's life-changing. It changes the course and direction of our life. See, it's not about just going to church. Although a lot of people have grown up going to church. It's not about giving an offering, although a lot of people give offerings. Don't stop. <laughs> but it's not just about being a good person or doing good for others. I think that's noble. That's having a good moral. But none of those things will make you a child of God apart from faith and trust in him. So the question is, when it comes down to the things that are characteristic of someone who truly knows Jesus, are those characteristics in your life? I didn't ask if you're perfect, because none of us are. In fact, God's word makes it very clear that there's only one perfect man, and that is Jesus Christ. But there's a characteristic within us that know him, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have the ability to overcome, right? We have the ability to be holy as he is holy. Otherwise, wouldn't it be a crazy God who would just sit up there in heaven and say, be holy, but you'll never do it. Narcissistic. No. He's a God who empowers us to do what he calls us to do, right? So the question is, do we know him? Do you have that certainty? And I'll close with this one statement. You've heard it before, I'm sure. But once again, I was talking with someone last week, and I made the comment in talking, just in passing, that if I live my life as if there were a God, and because of that belief, I lived a life of helping others, being kind to others, doing good, so to speak, and I get to the end of my life, 
and I find out that there is no God, I haven't lost anything. But if I live my life doing all the same things, good or bad, whatever, and find out there, there and I didn't believe in it, and I find out that there is, what have I lost? Everything. And sometimes I wonder, is that a risk that I'd want to take? I don't think so. But more than that, more than heaven being an escape from hell, more than that, it's an opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and gratitude for what he's done for us. Do you know him? Are you certain that if you were to die today, you'd spend eternity in heaven? Not I think, not I hope, not even that I wish, but that I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Do you have that kind of confidence? If not, God's word is clear. Simple as ABC. Admit that I'm a sinner, as we read in Romans 3.23. I need to admit that I'm a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. And C, confess and call on his name. And he says, for whosoever, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, I believe it is, says that today is the day of salvation. If you don't know him, I would encourage you to call on him to be your savior. No greater joy than to know that that miracle has taken place in your life. Because of his death, we can have life. Let's pray.